Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Abrams, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrea Hamill about her new book, Finding Refuge. Andrea is a reader in German at Aberystwyth University in Wales. She has published on women refugee writers, as well as the social and cultural history of refugees from National Socialism, and especially the kinder transport. Andrea, welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, as you said, I'm an academic. I work at Aberystwyth University and I've been researching refugees from National Socialism for the last sort of 25, actually probably almost 30 years. And um, I normally write academic works, but I've written this more... um, sort of accessible for general readership work finding refuge. Okay. Um, as, as listeners can probably tell, uh, Andrea does not have a mid-Wales accent. Uh, do you want to explain how you ended up in Aberystwyth? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I like talking about that. So I, I was born in West Germany in 1968, and I lived uh, in Germany for 20 years, um, going to school, you know, living with my parents in West Germany. But after finishing school, I very much wanted to get away from what I felt was very parochial at the time, parochial small West Germany. So I, I went far away. It felt far. And so I went to the U, came to the UK. I lived in London for a year and I volunteered in a place that um, educated young people with physical disabilities. And then I met someone and he had a place at a university and um, we both went to university together. I was an undergraduate in the UK and then obviously studied postgraduate work, PhD, and became a lecturer. I worked at the uh, Sussex University at the Center for German Jewish Studies until uh, 2010. And then in 2010, I came to Aberystwyth University. And uh, yeah, as I say in my book, all things being equal, I'm not intending to leave for any uh, long uh, space of time. 
Yeah, so listeners are aware I'm in Bangor, which is just up the coast um, from from Aberystwyth. So I'm in North Wales, and um, Andrew's in uh, Mid Wales. Um, but in a way, Andrew, you followed a similar trajectory um, to some of the people who you wrote about in your book, almost literally, right? That is true. Uh, although you know, my journey my journey was far less painful. It wasn't scary. I wasn't. I didn't have to leave because I was persecuted. It was purely I wanted to uh, get away. But some people do say that sometimes your research is a little bit about yourself, and maybe there is a little bit about that For a person who left and uh, then resettled uh, somewhere else. That's definitely also part of my life story. But the people, the stories I tell in the book are, of course, of people who had to leave. If they didn't, wouldn't have left, they might well have ended up murdered in the Holocaust. So would you like to tell us, um, how did you come to write Finding Refuge? Yes, well, when I started working at um, Aberystwyth University, my then uh, head of department, the late David Trotter, uh, pointed out to me that one of his neighbours was actually uh, a man who came uh, to uh, the UK on a kinder transport, um, William Dienemann, in his earlier life. He was Wolfgang Dienemann. He was from Berlin. He fled as a nine-year-old. And so I I interviewed him and then I started uh, looking at different life stories. Uh, About three years ago, I also received some funding for a project from the National Heritage Lottery Fund. The project was in conjunction with the Imperial War Museums London and eight hubs all over the UK, such hubs in Northern Ireland, in Cornwall, in Scotland, Manchester Jewish Museum, Uh, places like that. And uh, the project we focused on was refugees from National Socialism uh, in Wales, because really that hasn't been focused on in the same way as uh, refugees from National Socialism who resettled in England. And I think that's important uh, because some people, especially people who don't live in Wales, have rather a sort of a strange idea of Welsh society, uh, the Welsh people, the people who live in Wales. It is all very homogenous and that really um, everybody's sort of either Welsh speaker or everybody lives in South Wales and, and comes from a mining family or something like that. We all know that's not true, but uh, I felt like I needed to add another chapter to the sort of diverse history of Wales. Why do you think Wales hasn't received as much attention? Well, it is obviously uh, much smaller, and um, and and I think it is, is to do with the fact that the big um, sort of centres maybe of Jewish life are also not in Wales. They are obviously in, in more in London and, and maybe Manchester. Uh, I think that has, has something uh, to, to do with it. So I think um, this, these are the, the reasons, and I have certainly found a lot of stories, and we, we, we now believe um, that there might have been as many as 2,000 refugees from National Socialism living in Wales in the, in the 1930s. But we, it, it, a, the research area definitely has a problem with numbers, so we can't, we can't really prove that, but we've done, we've done um, some sort of more intensive research on the, on the smaller uh, counties like Caradigio and we looked at the local archives and we found many more uh, refugees than we expected because people of course had to had to sign the aliens register so you can find out who lived there in the 1930s. 
Um, that's very interesting, um, and I'll, I'll I'll probably ask you a bit more about the um, some of the things I found interesting in the book in a minute. Um, so would you like to just sort of run through how you structured the book? Well, we 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 I structured the book. Um, I wanted to tell a, a diverse range of stories. I wanted to tell stories of people who came as families, stories of uh, young refugees, older refugees. Then also I wanted to include uh, different uh, professional experiences, so uh, refugee industrialists, uh, refugee artists as well, refugee domestics, uh, a sort of a, a wide range. And of course, yeah, as I said, younger and older, and especially younger, also child uh, refugees. So in the end, I also managed, I think, to cover quite a, a sort of big range of locations as well, ra- ranging from South Wales to to um, uh, refugees who resettled in Mid-Wales, where I am, and, and also people who resettled uh, further uh, north. So uh, I, in the in the book, I do tell uh, stories of refugee industrialists who said settle on the Tre Forest Industrial Estate uh, near Pontypridd. I tell a story of a child refugee who uh, resettles uh, near uh, uh, resettles in, near Aberystwyth, but also uh, on Innesmon. And um, there's also Gwych Castle, which was. Uh, a setting for a, a, a community of uh, young refugees uh, as well, so Gwech Castle near near Abergele. So I wanted to tell these these different these different stories, and that's really how I um how how I structured the book. To a certain extent, I was guided by how much information I could find. Sometimes we found the start of a very interesting story, but obviously I needed to be able to find uh, enough information so I could could tell, uh, sort of give a full picture. So do you want to give us a snapshot of, um, say, one of the... um individuals that you focus yes, on yes sure um for example um the only only uh, story of sort of the indu- family that uh, settled in the industrial areas there's for example the copper family is a, a very interesting uh, story um the um oldest generation of the family uh, joachim koppel he was an entrepreneur in uh, germany uh, in berlin who then, after 1933, decided that he move, would move his family and his business interests to Czechoslovakia, because he obviously they were they were a Jewish family, and and he saw that they wouldn't be able to continue living and working in in Germany. So first to Czechoslovakia, and then uh, he tried to get uh, all members of the family to the UK. A um, bit of a complicated story, but um, interestingly, he was initially not keen to come to Wales, Joachim Koppel. He um, would have preferred to live in London and have his business in London, but there uh, were subsidies available in the so-called special areas, uh, areas of high unemployment. The British government gave subsidies to uh, people who were willing to establish a business in these areas and employ local people. Uh, so that attracted him, and he, he was in business with with a couple uh, more refugees that attracted them to this industrial estate, the Treforest Industrial Estate, 
in uh, South Wales. So eventually he agreed to establish his business there. And for a while, he actually lived in London and he commuted to his business in South Wales. But when 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 war broke out, uh, he actually also he did move uh, to Wales. So him, the oldest generation, very reluctant to actually come to Wales. Interesting uh, then his uh, sons and stepsons uh, and uh, stepdaughter, they had uh, sort of quite a different uh, relationship. So his um, uh, his uh, uh, stepson uh, Heinrich, uh, a couple, he uh, was an engineer and he was uh, a leading brain of part of the business on the Treforest estate. Uh, he was... Um, and he and in he's he he lived with his family in in Cardiff, um, and then uh, he, one of his sons he became a well known artist Heinz Koppel, who also lived in uh, in South Wales. He he also uh, was part uh, of an artistic movement and a sort of community artist school in Merford Tidwell, and he later lived. Uh, in near Aberystwyth, so he 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 wasn't keen on his father's sort of following his father's footsteps on the business. He 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 became a well-known artist, and and they very much became a part of uh, yeah I don't know part of the fabric of of Welsh uh, life. So they're an interesting family. Um, completely different end of the spectrum, I suppose, or maybe not. Uh, the um, ca- a, a refugee domestics so or someone um, who could uh, only escape Nazi Germany if they were willing to work as a domestic servant in the UK. So I don't know whether I should go back that far, but there generally two, there were four ways you could get. Uh, into the UK and you could get a visa and a work permit which you needed as an adult to get there. So one uh, possibility was if you were very famous, like Sigmund Freud, uh, you might get special uh, uh, permission. And then the other possibility was if you were able to establish a business, like I just said, with the Koppel family, or if you were willing uh, to work in an area where there was not enough uh, British labor, if people didn't want to do those jobs, and domestic service uh, was uh, one of them. So uh, I tell the story of Fanny Hörstetter, who was uh, actually uh, quite a high-ranking civil servant in, uh, in Germany before the Nazis came to power in 1933. But very soon after they came in power, they introduced a law that uh, stopped uh, Jews from working in the civil service. Um, and uh, so she had to give up her job. She was very upset about that. She was a, a professional woman and very proud of her career. But she, in the end, obviously, there was nothing she could do. And she was first reluctant to leave uh, Germany. Uh, because she was hoping, you know, that maybe things wouldn't be as bad and things would play over, blow over. But in the end, uh, she had to relent. And her sister already had a job as a domestic service servant in the Wirral, uh, and so the sister uh, got a job for Fanny as well. Fanny um, only managed to get this job by her 
uncle giving her a glowing reference, which was not based on the truth. So her uncle gave her a glowing reference saying she was incredibly good at housework. In fact, Fanny didn't like housework. She detested housework. Uh, but still, um, she she managed, through this, she managed to get to the UK. And um, that meant that she had... Um, she 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 didn't enjoy her time her time as a domestic server servant living with a family uh, in the world. They treated her. She felt they treated her like a skivvy. They only spoke to her if, when they were giving orders, and probably the fact that she she didn't really like housework wouldn't have endeared herself to the, to to this employer either. So eventually, when when the first initially um, people couldn't change their employers so if they had come to the UK. Uh, under a certain scheme, and if they'd come, um, they had to actually work with uh, with the two, with the employer uh, at the employers that had uh, they had originally uh, applied for. Uh, but fortunately, once war broke out, this uh, this sort of rule got changed, and she was able to seek different employment. And she ended up working as a, I suppose we would say, chambermaid as a cleaner in the Hand Hotel in Klongloch-Gochland. And she um, she liked that more. I mean, obviously, that was still a cleaning uh, business, but on the other hand, it meant she was together uh, with fellow refugees. She wasn't living isolated in a household. Uh, she lived in a hostel with other refugees and she did her work every day in the hotel. And there she met a fellow refugee, Anton Hunsdorfer, who was also uh, originally um, from uh, Germany, uh, but he um, he wasn't Jewish. He, he was a communist uh, and he, he had to leave uh, Germany obviously because he was persecuted being a political opponent of the Nazi regime. And, and yeah, that's, uh, he's, he's got quite an interesting story because he got quite involved in the, in the union movement uh, in, in North Wales, in the agricultural union, in the forestry uh, business. And he, um, he basically, they met Fanny and Anton met and uh, fell in love and married and, and had, uh, had uh, their first son while they were still uh, living in Klangochlen. Um, so that's a very interesting story, obviously a very different life from an industrialist. And then, yeah, there are various stories of people who came as children, uh, some who lived with foster families and there, and some who lived in communal settings like these teenage refugees. There were about 180 teenage refugees who lived in Gwech Castle. Um, uh, this was um, set up by a Zionist organization, and, and really they, they were there to be trained in agricultural work so they would be able to make Aliyah, they would be able to uh, emigrate to Israel um, eventually, or rather to Palestine, actually. And, um, and yeah, that's what they, they, they trained him there for. So that was a quite an interesting setting as well. For those very young refugees, uh, those refugees uh, that came with the kinder transport. So the kinder transport was the fourth way of being able to gain admittance to the UK. And that was only for unaccompanied children. So young people under 16, first it was under 18, then under 17, and then under 16. So only for unaccompanied young children. So these were normally children who did have families in 
Germany, uh, in the German Reich, you know, Germany, Austria, uh, Czechoslovakia, and whose parents, by 1938, the scheme ran from... Um, December 1938 to September 1939, their parents were so desperate to get them to safety that they agreed to let them emigrate. They agreed to let them flee without them. And they were then in the UK. Once they arrived, they were resettled with with foster families or in these communal settings like Guech Castle. And people had varying experiences. Uh, some people, um, for example, in Gwich Castle, seemed to have enjoyed living in this sort of community with other young refugees. But there were also others who uh, have come to criticize their, this experience, that there wasn't enough adult supervision, that there was um, terrible conditions uh, the ca- castle never uh, had sort of modern conveniences. The sanitary conditions weren't great. It was they didn't have a right heating system in the winter, and especially sort of there was lack of adult supervision and possibly lack of schooling as well. So that uh, was one experience. Then of those who managed to be resettled with foster families, their experience also varied very much. Some foster families were extremely insightful. They were good at looking after small children, uh, small children who were clearly traumatized, who had been separated from their parents, who arrived in the UK, most of them not speaking any English nor any Welsh, uh, and who had to resettle with families they couldn't initially basically communicate with. So there's a story, for example, of uh, uh, some of the very young uh, children who came on a kinder transport, uh, like uh, uh, Renate Kress, later Renate Collins, who arrived as a five-year-old from Prague, and she was uh, settled with a minister and his wife, a religious minister in South Wales. And, And she's still alive. I still managed to talk to her, managed to interview her, and she uh, remembers her experience as uh, largely very positive, uh, that her foster parents looked after her well. Um, and these foster parents, they tried to keep up uh, with her, keep up her uh, identity. They talked to her about her birth family, and they talked to her about her religious background as well, that she was not uh, a Christian girl, that she was Jewish. And uh, the father actually, at some stage, worked in um, sort of in in um, in in comparative religious studies at Swansea University. So that that is, she certainly remembers uh, her um, foster family with great fondness, uh, and she managed to, as I said, still interview her in uh, twenty twenty two in in Wales. Um, other stories are not. As positive, there were clearly there was clearly a lack of um, supervision, a lack of preparation of the foster parents. So there's another story of two extremely young uh, children who uh, came to the UK on a kinder transport. Uh, three year old twins, Lottie and Susie Bechhofer. Uh, they were um, from Munich. Uh, their mother had a very difficult life and had 
placed them in a orphanage. She was a single mother, placed them in an orphanage in Munich. And uh, to to save them, really, they were put on a kinder transport. So again, Jewish, uh, a Jewish mother. And she they were fostered again uh, by a minister and his wife in South Wales. But clearly they were not as insightful. They were not willing to... Um, keep up uh, their uh, the, 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 sort of accept the, the children's uh, background. They actually really wanted to pretend, certainly the foster father wanted to pretend that these children uh, were his birth children, which obviously they weren't. And um, this is one of the most harrowing stories because he was clearly a, a con- very controlling and criminal man, he sexually abused Susie Bechhofer, which would obviously have terrible um, effect on her the rest of her life. So there are lots of different stories, and there are stories of uh, quite sort of wonderful hospitality, people who really tried to put themselves out to help uh, refugees, some, you know, for example, the the foster parents, but also just other uh, people in Wales who encounter the refugees. For example, there's a story of uh, someone uh, who in Abagele, a policeman in Abagele, is sort of Bobby on the beat, who when he first encounters these teenage refugees, when they see him, they were very scared because obviously the experience they've had with men in uniform in Germany and they run away from this policeman. Uh, and and he's very worried. He doesn't he doesn't want them to be scared of him. And he actually, you know, he actually goes to the castle with a cake and introduces himself to the community. So clearly, there are a lot of people who who made a big effort, but there are also some people who 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 didn't and and who who were. While trying, to, maybe trying to help, they they did things that that really were totally unacceptable. Um, was was there anything um, sort of sp- you know that you discovered that was specifically Welsh about the environment? Uh, um... Yeah, well, some um, of the um, the refugees they became Welsh speakers. So again, the uh, the young refugees in Abergele they. They, lots of those young people, they were already at least bilingual or possibly trilingual already. So learning another language didn't particularly phase them. And they, they worked out that apparently when you you got to work with the local farmers, if you gave them, if you spoke to them in Welsh, you get more treats. So they worked that out and they learned some Welsh very quickly. But also there's also the story of, um, there, there, there is the story of, Kate Bosse Griffiths, who was a young uh, Jewish woman uh, from the east of Germany, from a town called Wittenberg. Her mother was Jewish, her father wasn't Jewish. Um, she was a young woman, very educated young woman. She trained uh, as an archaeologist. She worked uh, in the in museums in Berlin, but she left. Um, Germany uh, in the mid 1930s because again it was clear she couldn't uh, have a career in Germany. She worked in various uh, in various sort of um, jobs as as assistants of academics, and she met her husband 
uh, later, uh, later uh, the man who would later become her husband, who was an ac- uh, academic as well and who was Welsh. So when they married, uh, they moved. They moved around a bit. They lived near Bala. Uh, then uh, at some stage they moved to uh, Abertau. They moved to Swansea, and um, she was really um, fascinated by the Welsh language, and she learned Welsh, and she became a Welsh language author. She wrote novels and poetry in Welsh, and she also became a Welsh language campaigner. Uh, um, I I managed to interview her son, uh, Heine Griffiths, who still lives in Swansea, and he told he showed us uh, some documents, and he told us that she she was one of those activists who refused to pay a parking fine because it was issued only in English, and um, so she became a campaigner as well. And 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 Heine says he does feel that she um, she that that this was important to her. She thought that the Welsh people and the Welsh language were oppressed and obviously having suffered this experience of oppression in Germany, uh, she also uh, felt uh, very strongly uh, about um, the language rights and, and the rights of the Welsh people. So she was a very, um, very, very interesting woman. And her son, Heine Griffiths, is a, well, a, langu- a Welsh language lecturer. And her, her other son, Robert, uh, runs Ilova, the Welsh language or the Welsh Welsh publishing house. So they've had a big influence. This family had a big influence, clearly, on uh, Welsh uh, life. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off that was very interesting one of the things that struck me in the book was um particularly how um i think i think you said that the villages of wales um reminded the um refugees of some of their hometowns uh, the rural hometowns in eastern and central europe i'd never really thought of that it makes me think of the times wales has been used to double up as some of those locations in films yes and no no funny funny Hochstetter said that it reminded her some of the obviously the more wooded area in north wales and reminded her of the black forest and then uh, some other people um, I haven't talked very much about the artists, I suppose. Uh, the most, possibly the most well-known artist, Josef Hermann. He was a Polish uh, Jew who had already left Poland uh, in 
the early 1930s and and moved to Belgium. And then when obviously uh, the Germans advanced on Belgium, he escaped uh, to the UK. And he ended up living in Istrad Gilais uh, in South Wales. Again, he ended up uh, living in a village that was very much dominated by the mining industry. And he painted some very iconic uh, large paintings of of the South Wales miners, but also he was very prolific also of the the local landscape in the valleys. Yeah, um, and, uh, and that's interesting. Um, the you know the artists and the and, and, and the representation of the landscape, and um, um, one of the things that um, occurred to me as I, as I read your book is the, the number of times that Wales and Israel have been compared, and I like the idea that um, Wales somehow was seen as a kind of training ground um, for uh, as preparation for a life um, on a kibbutz in in Palestine or Israel. Um, yes, uh, uh, that is definitely it was definitely the the case with the young refugees of of Klandaf and Gwech Castle. However, one has to say um, that didn't really work out so well in certainly not in the nineteen thirties uh, and forties. The hope that uh, the British, of course. Uh, uh, you know, had the mandate over Palestine at the time, but they hoped that if you managed to get into the UK, you could then um, emigrate to Palestine. That didn't work out for most of them at the time. Obviously, also during the war years, uh, just generally uh, travel was extremely difficult. But some of the the uh, young people um, who lived in Gwech Castle, they they did. Uh, they did. They 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 were part of of Israeli society. They lived in Kibbutzim later. Um, so so it did did work for 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 some people. But um, the Gwich Castle it was a training camp. It was called the Hashara. They that did uh, sort of cease to exist in 1941 because in the end, as beautiful as the castle was, it was not particularly practical. It was very difficult to heat and so on. I've mentioned that already. And mo- most of the people, obviously, also these young refugees, they got older. They were young teenagers when they arrived, and then they got older, and most of them actually moved uh, to England because the economic opportunities were were greater uh, in England at the time. I suspect it didn't work out because... Um... Well, the weather here is rubbish. <laughs> Doesn't prepare you for Israel in the slightest, does it? No, no, that is that is very true. I don't know quite how they all um, coped with that. Uh, there's there's actually less a fret less complaints about the weather than you you might expect. I have read quite a few uh, interviews where people complain about the food as well. The British food people the people didn't like it. It was too much white bread and tea. Uh, which is not something that so was certainly not so popular in in Central Europe at the time. <laughs> that that could be a whole other conversation. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to move on to your final chapter. I thought that was very interesting. And if you wanted to speak a little bit about that, it's 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 um it's titled "Refugees in Wales Now and Then." Um, so I thought yes, well, a... I think, as I said in my introduction, very much my idea is to show sort of uh, show narratives of the complexity of of Welsh society, and obviously there are refugees arriving in Wales 
these days, um, and they have been ever since the 1930s. So I, I just give some sort of snapshots of people uh, uh, who who arrived um, in in more recent uh, years, and I've 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 given some sort of short stories of of people who Syrian refugees, for example refugees uh, from other uh, parts of Europe and also refugees who arrived uh, so for example Tamil refugees uh, refugees who arrived from Asia so so really they also there are some similarities because some of them uh, also sort of you know are very very fond of the Welsh landscape they're very uh, they say it's sort of so beautiful so green and so on and so forth there some of the challenges are still similar some uh, women refugees who, who found it really difficult to establish themselves, some young refugees who try to get into education and whose educational opportunities are sort of cut short possibly because uh, it, it, of economics, for example. That's something uh, Renato Collins describes and that some of the young refugees uh, who who who've arrived in the twenty first century also arrived at, and then they but often they also arrived at uh, they also describe that sense of achievement that they have managed to get here and that they have managed to establish themselves. They have managed to establish their own uh, businesses as well, uh, and and that's certainly a matter of pride. And it was a matter of pride in the thirties and forties, and 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 still is a matter of pride now. Well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for that um, um, description and, and uh, of of your book. Um, I understand there's an accompanying exhibition. Would you like to tell us more about that? Yes. There. So, so as I said, it was part of a project funded by the National Heritage Lottery Fund, and uh, this uh, another of the outcomes of this project was a, a um, was actually a website. There's also a website. So if you Google refugees from National Socialism in Wales, you'll end up with the website. But there's also an exhibition. So this exhibition was showing at the Aberystwyth Arts Centre in uh, November, December and January this year, 2023. And it has now moved on uh, to the Zenith and the Pierhead Galleries in Cardiff. So at the moment, it's in the Zenith, the Pierhead Gallery. So that's from mid-February uh, to uh, mid-April 2023. And it's free, uh, so everybody can, uh, everybody who wants to can go in and can have a look. There's an exhibition film as part of that as well. It was opened on St. David's Day uh, in the Zenith. Obviously, we're very pleased about that. Uh, and then uh, it will... Um, go to the Pontio in Bangor uh, in the month of June as well. So for for those of you living near there, so that's June twenty twenty three. But just quite un, quite surprisingly, really, that it had such a reach. But this morning we actually found out that it will also be showing in the Houses of Parliament for a week in May. So <laughs> this is not a, the Houses of Parliament stint is not something that's open to the public. That's only open for MPs and people who work in Westminster. But we're obviously very pre- pleased that it had that sort of reach. Um, and and yeah, as I said, uh, we don't know where it's going after that, but certainly in June it will be in Bangor. Well, that's excellent, um, and I hope the MPs take a time to take time out to look at it. Um, so we've. 
we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before you go, um, would you like to tell us what you're working on now? Yes, well, I'm I'm working on another book also to do with refugees from National Socialism. I am working on a book that's specifically focused on the kinder transport because the kinder transport is often told as a very sort of positive story, a positive story that the UK, the UK government um, saved 10,000 children. Uh, and it is uh, true that the UK government initiated the kinder transport through a sort of policy change, but really it was volunteers and um, private individuals who supported the kinder transport. So I'm telling the story of the kinder transport again for a general readership, but uh, I, I really wanted to tell the whole story, the complex story. And it, it relates to what I've done uh, with the uh, Finding Refuge book, because again, ordinary people uh, feature largely in the book. Well, that's great. So I look forward to reading that and maybe you can come back when it's published and talk about it. Oh, thank you very much. I would like that. Well, I want to thank you um, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed. Um, I really enjoyed it. And um, take care. Yeah, thank you very much. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.